All right, we're going to be back in Philippians chapter 1. Again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. But I want to ask you a question when we start. Do you, do you remember your, your absolute favorite toy when you were growing up? Remember your, your, your favorite toy? Maybe you had a, a list, several, there were several toys, but your favorite toy. I had a few, but one of my absolute favorites was uh, Evil Knievel motorcycle, stunt cycle. Um, you know, you, you'd put them in that little red thing, you'd rev it up, the thing would take off, and it would do jumps. It was, I just, man, I played hours and hours and hours and hours. I loved this toy. Uh, and then it broke. You know, like all of my favorite toys, it would eventually, it'd eventually break. So uh, a few years ago, I was actually uh, cruising around on eBay, and I found Evil Knievel stunt motorcycle, and I bought another one for myself. And the crazy thing was that one of my close friends, we discovered that it, that was his favorite toy as well. So I bought two of them, and I, and I sent him one, and I got one. And, you know, I took it out of the box, and I revved it up once. I go, ah, you know, it's just, it's just not the same. The thrill was gone, I have to confess. And, you know, I've noticed that that's kind of true with, um, like, everything in life. Right? You, you enjoy it for a moment, and then the thrill is gone. I remember the first time... Uh, that I got an iPhone. Oh my gosh, I was like, this, this is genuinely the first piece of technology that just overwhelms me and stuns me. I go, this is, really, this is really cool. And then I learned that they're engineered to break every two years. And I'm, you know, now when I buy a, a new iPhone, I'm bitter, right? There's no joy. It's just I'm angry that I have to buy a new one of these things that's designed to break. And you know, that, that's just, that's just kind of how how life works, right? We seek after these, these thrills, these joys, this excitement, but it just doesn't last. Because it's not made to last. And what we discover is what we really long for is we long for something that will stay. Right? That, that we can't lose and it can't be taken away from us, but it's, it's something that endures. The Bible calls that thing joy. Or what we really long for is joy, enduring, lasting joy that we can't lose, that can't be taken away from us. That's joy. I want you to listen to these words of Jesus to his disciples. This is from John chapter 16, right before he was about to be uh, captured by the Roman guard and crucified. He said this to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament when I am taken away, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. He says, in that day, you will say, yes, Jesus is back. It's all good. He says, that's joy. And it's only found in Jesus. It's not found anywhere else. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is that deep, deep longing of our heart for joy. Philippians chapter 1, and let's read together in verse 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, in fact, I will continue to rejoice. Joy, in fact, is uh, one of the most significant themes of the letter Philippians. Paul uses it 14 times. And if we don't really dig deeply into the meaning of joy, we won't understand what the book of Philippians is all about. So I want you to read with me 
Philippians chapter 2, turn over one chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, and let's, let's kind of dig out what Paul means by the concept of joy. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What Paul says is, I, I'm spending myself. And we'll look at this verse in a little more depth uh, in a couple of weeks. But he, he's saying, I'm, I'm pouring myself out. I'm like a drink offering. I'm, I'm just, I'm giving you everything. And because I'm giving you everything and I'm giving the cause of Christ everything, I'm suffering and I'm sacrificing and I'm rejoicing. In other words, joy is something that can occur in the midst of profound and utter and complete self-sacrifice. It's also something that can be shared among a community of people that are doing the same. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, always let me tell you, rejoice. What he's saying is this. Joy is a choice. It's an imperative. It's a command. Paul says rejoice. I want you to choose joy and I want you to share your joy. You can do this. And you can do it actually in in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. That's in fact where joy often emerges with the most beauty is in the midst of suffering and sacrifice. That's the nature of joy. So it's not circumstantial. It can't be taken from you. You can't lose it if you are fixed on the right Point of joy. What does he say? Verse 1 of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. Verse, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of the world offers you happiness. Happiness is always tied directly to your circumstances, perhaps. Same root word, happenstance, happenings, things that just come upon you. You respond with happiness because your circumstances are good. That's not joy. That's what the world has to offer, but he says the kingdom of God is something different. Not the thrills of eating and drinking or the best that the world has to offer, which give you just a moment of happiness, but something much more profound that only comes from the Spirit of God, and that is joy. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 Jeremiah wrote, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Now the reason I use that particular verse from Jeremiah to illustrate joy is because Jeremiah was suffering deeply. He was, he was being persecuted by his own people. He was thrown down into a well in the midst of prophesying that God was going to judge his own people. I mean, Jeremiah's life was horrible. You don't want to be a prophet. I mean, prophets have the, they have the worst experience of life. And yet he says, I was filled with joy. I was filled with delight. Because joy is something that transcends circumstances. And really, that's what we want. Because we don't have control over our circumstances. We want something that remains, that abides, that cannot be taken from us, no matter how difficult life gets. So what is joy? Let me give you a definition. Joy is this. It is delight in what we now have in Jesus and the confident expectation of all that we will soon receive from Jesus. See, joy operates in both the now and the not yet. It is delight in what we now have 
in Jesus. You know that the word joy, kara, is actually from the same root as the word grace, karas. What's grace? Grace means that God has given you his undeserved favor in Jesus. You are uh, adopted by him. You are reconciled to the Father. You are redeemed. You're purchased with his blood. You're justified. You're declared righteous. You have the promise and hope of glorification in the future. You have all of these things presently. That's kara, joy, grace, karas. It's also related to the same word for thanksgiving, eucharisto. When when my my heart and my mind are set on all that I have been given in Jesus Christ, I'm grateful. And when my heart and my mind are set on all that I will receive from Jesus Christ, I'm grateful. Joy, thanksgiving, grace are all interrelated. Joy is that delight in what I now have in Jesus, but also that confident expectation of all that we will soon receive from Jesus that cannot be taken away from us. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him, though you do not see him even now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You're grateful for what you have in this moment, and you are hopeful and confident of what you will receive one day. And so he says, you know, you can't even express that deep and abiding sense of joy because your joy is set on the right object that doesn't move, which is... Jesus. Or as the psalmist said, in your presence now is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever and ever and ever. And church, that's what we really long for. Because we don't have control over all of the circumstances that hit us in life. But we can have a joy when it's fixed on Jesus that cannot be taken away from us. Now, why is this so important? Because I would, I would argue that there really are just um, two perspectives that animate our lives, right? Two perspectives through which we, we view all of, world, all of the world and all the circumstances and that, that affect our, our, our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors, and those are our fear and joy. Okay, everything we do, we do out of either fear or joy. Fear is focused on what I have that might be taken away from me or what I think I really, really must have but I don't have, and so I long for it. And so the emotions that correspond with fear are anger, because you might take something from me, or God might take something from me, or my circumstances, my health might take something from me. And so there's, there's fear and anger, there's fear and anxiety, there's fear and greed. Right? Fear animates so much of how we respond to life. But the other way that we can look at life is joy which is focused on all that I have in Jesus right now and all that I will receive. And the result is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, because ultimately there's nothing that can be taken away from me that I, that I have to have for life to be rich and full and satisfying. The worst that can be taken away from me is life, and Paul will say, then I have life forever with Jesus. Right? So I look at the world through these, one of these two lenses, either fear or joy. And the human machine was made to run on joy. We don't function well when we run on fear. We break down mentally and emotionally and even physically when we're continually running on fear. And our relationships become destroyed. Our health becomes destroyed. Our love of life is gone because we were made to run on joy. So, Philippians chapter 1, I want to give you three reasons from Paul that we should choose joy. 
Okay, Philippians chapter 1, let's read again in verse 18. Paul says, What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says rejoice because God will deliver you. Uh, Literally, he says here, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. The word he uses here uh, for deliverance is soteria, it's salvation. So what's the deliverance that Paul is hoping or expecting? We're actually going to talk about this again when we hit chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Every time you see that word, salvation, you need to back up and say, what's he talking about? Salvation from what? Or salvation... Uh, deliverance from what or rescue from what let me give you kind of the range of options and again if you don't get get all these written down you can get them off the slides or uh, in a couple weeks we will go back over this first of all biblically we see salvation or deliverance from the penalty of sin that's what we call justification the moment you believe jesus he rescues you or delivers you from the penalty of sin which is separation from god or death and you have eternal life and all that you have to do is believe. That's being rescued or delivered from the penalty of sin. Second, deliverance from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. That is, the Spirit is continually working in your life, conforming you to the image of Christ, so that you become more and more reflective of the character of Jesus in your life. That's salvation from the power of sin in your life. Third, salvation from the presence of sin. Someday we will be with Jesus in eternity and the flesh will be removed, and there will be no, no sin within us. There will be no sin in our environment. Sin will be completely gone, and we will be at peace and experience joy because the presence of sin is removed. We also see deliverance from physical things like sickness, from enemies, and from physical danger itself. So in this context, what is Paul expecting? He says, I know that this, that is my current circumstances... I'm in prison and about to go to trial. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, a lot of commentators say, well, what he's hoping for and expecting then is that he's going to get out of prison. He's going to be exonerated. I I, I don't think that that's what's foremost on on Paul's mind right now. I don't think that that's what he's thinking about. Simply a rescue from his enemies or rescue from this physical danger that he's facing in this moment. In fact, if you want to read verse 20 again with me, He says this, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is hoping for is deliverance from prison? No. Through his circumstances. What did Paul uh, really want to avoid? Verse 20. That I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That is, Paul wants deliverance from shame and deliverance for the exaltation of Christ. He wants salvation through the trial. In fact, uh, what he quotes here is it's a paraphrase of Job chapter 13 where Job says, This also will be my salvation. I know that I will be vindicated. 
here's Paul's hope. He is literally, literally about to go to trial. He's, he's two years into this imprisonment. He's expecting that the trial will come quickly. And he's going to have a moment. He's going to have an opportunity to stand up in front of the, the Roman authorities who have the power over life and death for him. And in that moment, his great longing is that he would be bold and stand for Jesus. And his great confidence is, in fact, that God will deliver him through this trial. And he will not put Jesus to shame, but instead he will stand up for Jesus. Because Paul's one nagging fear in life was simply this, that he would shrink back. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I buffet my body, I make my body my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself would be disqualified, that I would live in a manner that's not worthy of Christ, that I would be in these moments and I have an opportunity and I wouldn't be bold. So time after time after time, you know what he asked the churches to pray for him? Boldness. Boldness. Deliver me from pulling back from Jesus. Deliver me toward exalting Jesus even with my body, with everything that I am. Because he knew he was, he was about to have one of those moments. For two years, he had been anticipating that moment and praying for that moment. And he said, Lord, make me bold. Let me be ready for this moment. In 2010, I, I uh, read a story about uh, a golfer. Some of you will remember this. Jim Furyk. He was uh, number six in the world at the time. And he was getting ready to go into the four FedEx Cup tournaments. Those would determine who would be the number one golfer in the world. And they would win, I don't know, like $10 million. So four tournaments, right? First tournament came up. And Furyk had a tee time for 7.30 a.m. The only problem was his alarm didn't go off. Because he set an alarm on one of these. <laughs> and he forgot to plug it in. And he was disqualified. He was literally running to the course pulling on his shirt, putting on his shoes, and he was disqualified. He missed the moment. I don't know about you students, but um, when I was in school, and then for years after I got out of school, I would have this recurring nightmare, which was that I had signed up for a course, and then I'd just kind of forgotten about the course, and I didn't attend the course all semester, and then when finals came, I remembered oh my gosh, I'm in that course and I have to take the final. And I walked in having heard no lectures, having read no books, having done no homework. I was completely and utterly unprepared for the moment. Right now, Paul says, I'm ready for the moment. And I'm confident in salvation or deliverance through my trial. Not from my trial, not deliverance out of my circumstances, but through my circumstances that I would exalt God. Verse 20, let's read it again. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or whether by death. He literally is about to face trial and he will get one of two judgments. Paul, you're released or Paul, you're dead. So what he's talking about here is literal. Literally, by life or by death, God has given me a body. And what is the purpose of my body? Again, literally, to make God great. To make make God large. 
to, to exalt him. That's why God has given me this body, because everything that we do, we do with our bodies, right? If we are eating, or if we are sleeping, or if we are praying, or if we are working, or if we're speaking, or if we're thinking, we always do it with our body. And Paul says, my body, your body, it's a gift. And what is the gift given for? So that in everything I do, whether I'm living or whether I'm dying, God is made great in my body. So this is his prayer. This is his hope. He's not actually consumed with the thought of getting out of prison. He isn't constantly saying, pray for my circumstances to change. Pray for my circumstances to change. Pray for my circumstances to change. He's not. And I'm not saying those are bad things to pray for, but that's not what really has gripped his heart and his mind at this point in time. But I will confess to you, that is almost always what grips my heart and my mind. If I'm genuinely honest, I'm always thinking... God, change this circumstance. God, change that circumstance. God, bring this circumstance to me. Let me avoid this. I'm always thinking about that. Silly illustration, but, you know, when I go to a a restaurant that's crowded and I'm with a group, that's just a tense moment. I mean, you know, because you you put your name on the wait list and you ask them, how long are you going to wait? And they say 20 minutes. It doesn't matter how many people are waiting. It's 20 minutes. It's, it's always the same. And, and so uh, I, I, I lean over and I look at the list and see how many people are on there and how many parties, parties are in each list. And, you know, we've got five people, I realize, and there's a three in front of us and a two, right? But there's a six behind us. And then I kind of scan the restaurant and I see who's at their tables and how far along are they in their meal and how big is that table? And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm processing all of this as, as I'm standing there. And, and, you know, so I'm not talking to anybody because I got to analyze the situation, right? Because a table, you begin, a table begins to come open and it's a table that could seat five or six. And then they give it to the People who are only, there are only three of them there. And I'm thinking, that, no, that's not good planning. You know, we should, we should be moved into that table, you know. And so I'm kind and I'm missing out on something there, right? Um, I guess I could enjoy the people I'm with. <laughs> we have an extra 20 minutes to talk. Ah, maybe I'd have an opportunity to, to speak a kind word to a hostess who's completely stressed out by people like me. Perhaps, perhaps there's a moment that God has given me and I'm so consumed with my circumstances, I completely miss the moment. Paul says, I'm, I'm not really consumed, whether by life or by death, they may say you're free, they may say you're dead. But my goal is with my body, all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, God would be exalted, God would be lifted up. And notice what he says here. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. How how do I have that earnest expectation and hope? We'll go back to verse 19. I'm confident that this, my present circumstances, will turn out for my deliverance through my trial because of your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm confident because I know that you're praying with me and you're not just praying that I get out of jail. You're praying that I would stand for Jesus Christ in the moment, in the midst of the opportunity I don't know exactly what transpires as we, we say our prayers into the air. But there are three great illustrations where we see uh, angels activated. Right? Uh, Elijah and Daniel and um, Jesus. There's, there's something that's happening in the spiritual realm as we begin to pray and God begins to, to uh, speak along with us and the Spirit is groaning for us. The Spirit is translating what we think we need into what we actually need. 
and the Spirit is activating angelic forces, and things are, are moving and shaking. And Paul says, I know that you've entered into that reality for me. And, and church, we need that, especially when we're suffering. Right? Especially when we're suffering, because when we're suffering, we take our eye off the prize. When we're suffering, we think about get out of the circumstance. When we're suffering, we, we begin to, to focus more on these things that we, we think will give us joy that won't give us joy. That are just momentary changes in, in circumstances, things that we can uh, find happiness what we need is joy. Well, the problem is for us, we, we just love things that won't bring us joy. We chase after those things that won't bring us joy. And when they're gone, we're just, it, they crush us and devastate us. And so we need, our, we need our friends and our family surrounding us to help us stay focused on what truly, genuinely matters in life. Let me give you one, another illustration of this. I, um, when we were growing up, um, we didn't have a lot of money. And, uh, I loved playing hockey, and hockey's a really expensive sport. And so... Every year, for me to play hockey, we would go to what's called the skate exchange, which is uh, everybody bring their used equipment. And I'd get new used equipment, right? New to me, used equipment, because we couldn't afford new equipment. But that's all right, because I just love to play so much. I, I wanted to play. I was willing to skate on anything. So I never, I never had a new pair of skates. And, you know, my parents still feel terrible about that. Like, Whatever, you know, I, I got to play hockey, which is great. But I never had new skates. I always kind of wanted new skates, but I didn't get new skates. Well... Uh, after eighth grade year, ninth grade year, we moved out of New York and we moved to Michigan. And I didn't want to go to Michigan. But the one bonus of being in Michigan is that my dad made more money and I got my first pair of new skates. <laughs> Which didn't entirely make up for moving, right, and leaving friends, but I got a pair of Bauer Supremes. Right? I, I hear no whoops because none of you skate. Which is just fine, but I'm just telling you, man, Bauer Supremes were just like the top. Oh, they were just amazing. These were beautiful Absolutely beautiful skates. And they had these new took blades. They're just, oh my gosh. It was, it was such a joy. I mean, it was a thrill to skate on these high-end, brand-new skates. Well, the next year, we moved to Texas. We moved here. We moved right here. And there was no ice skating rink, right? There was the Galleria in Houston. And I think there was something. Some, there, there was no hockey. There was nothing. And so all my equipment just sat in a bag as I slowly outgrew it. And then uh, our cousins who live in North Dakota, they're younger uh, than I am, and uh, their dad called and said, hey, you got any equipment that we could have? So I sent all my equipment up to my cousins, and they got to skate on my, my bower skates. And the older cousin, he skated on them, then he handed them down to the younger cousin, he skated on them. And then one day my uncle called and said, yeah, uh, the, the skates broke, the blade broke. And I was crushed. Which is so absolutely crazy because... They're old, used skates that didn't even fit me anymore. But I was so angry that they broke the blade. Why? Because we love stuff that won't bring us joy. (laughs) We think it will. And what do we need? We need friends around us to say, you know where joy is found? Enduring joy is only found in Jesus. Because you don't have control over these circumstances, but God can deliver you through them so that in that moment you can stand boldly for Jesus and say, my joy is in him. My joy is in him. And when you stand up and do that, you look very, very different from all the world around you. Because they're up and down and sideways and all over the place because they're just seeking after the happiness that the world can bring. But you stand for joy because you stand for Jesus. And Paul says, this is what brings me joy. I'm confident that God will deliver me through my circumstances. Second, rejoice because God will deliver you for a fruitful life. Read with me in verse 21. 
Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to prefer. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul was, in fact, pretty confident that he was going to be released from prison, but he knew that he would be released for a purpose. And he said this, to live as Christ. If I'm going to live, the purpose of living on is just this, it's just, it's just Christ. So I wonder, uh, how would you answer that question? If you, that sentence was put in front of you and it was left blank, what would you say? To, for to me, to live is... And if you're really honest with yourself, how would you, how would you know? To me, to live is what? Well, you know, what, do you, what do you really get most passionate about, right? What do you yell the loudest for? What do you, what do you smile the biggest for? Where do you put the, the bulk of your, your time and your energy and your money? If somebody else looked in, they would say, well, for you to live is whatever that thing is. Because right? what gets us most excited, most animated, or most angry, or most depressed, or we invest most of our life in, that's what we really are living for. For to me, Paul said, to live is Christ. But how would you answer that question for yourself? If you fill in the blank with anything other than Jesus, then all that you're going to get is a little bit of happiness now and then. If you fill the blank in with anything other than Christ, the best you hope for is a bit of happiness that comes and goes. Paul says, to me, to live is Christ. Let's read it again, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So in other words, for Paul, to live as Christ meant this. It meant fruitful labor. So let's do another quick word study. What is fruit? Uh, Well, literal fruit in the Bible. Adam and Eve reached up and they took a fruit. Probably not an apple. We don't know. Some people say a pomegranate. It doesn't really matter. They just weren't supposed to eat it. And it looked good and it tasted good. And God said, no, that's fruit, literal fruit. Right? But there's also figurative fruit, which is just the product or the outcome of something. And in uh, spiritual terms, when this is used, it means one of two things. It either means converts or character. Fruit is people believing in Jesus Christ for the first time. And fruit is character, people being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? It's people finding and following Jesus. That's the fruit. And Paul says, this is what I'm giving my labor, my effort for, that there would be people who discover Jesus for the first time or are discovered by him and that they grow up into maturity and do exactly the same. For to me, to live is Christ. That is, I'm giving my life on behalf of others, finding and following Jesus. That's what my life is for. That's the fruit that I am pursuing. So what does that mean for us as Christians? It means that our joy is found when we pursue a fruitful life. And it's not found when we just pursue happiness. And that's why so many of us are both unhappy and unjoyful. Because we can't find it there. Now, I want to um, explode an idea for you uh, right now that hopefully will carry you through the rest of your life. And that is this. Um, Christians don't actually ever get to retire. Damn you. I mean, fully retire. You, you may 
uh, switch jobs or you may stop doing a job that pays you money or you may slow down a bit, but you don't ever get to retire. So just stop thinking about retirement. You don't get to retire. It's just not part of the equation for a Christian. Circumstances may change, but you don't get to quit life. So if your dream is, you know, I'm going to work really, really hard so that I can retire early at 50 so I can golf. Or so that I can travel. Or so that I can paint. Or so that I can cook. Please, banish the thought for the rest of your life. Now, a little bit of golf is fun. A life of golf is death. I mean, it's just not. I love, I love golf. But seriously, that, that you'd give your life, my hope is, my hope and dream, I can save and save and save and save so I can just keep hitting that white ball. Hitting that white, I lost that one. Again, I just, I, seriously, seriously, for to me to live as retirement, for to me to live as golf, no. For to you to live as Christ, which means you invest your life in others. So golf and take buddies along who don't know Jesus. Or buddies who know Jesus, but they're not walking with Jesus and you need to help them along. Or paint for Jesus. Or cook for Jesus. Or do whatever for Jesus. But don't just stop thinking about retirement. You're not going to retire. You're called to make disciples of all nations for the absolute rest of your life. And then you go to be with the Lord. That's, that's how it ends. Right? So Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. If I'm delivered, it's delivered for a specific purpose. And if you say, I'm going to chase after something else, you know what? You will not find joy. You're going to find a moment of happiness because you hit a good drive and it didn't go in the woods. But the next one will. Right? It's gone, just like that. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, said this. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? So I'm going to drag us into the pit for just a moment, but then we'll, we'll arise again. Okay, just, but let's go with Tolstoy. He's a Russian, right? I mean, Russian writer. It's, it's dark. But it's true. So listen. Okay, is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? For a time it is possible to live intoxicated with this life. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud. Or as Thoreau said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation because they have sobered up and they realize, I can't find joy. I just find moments of happiness. To which I would add, the mass of men lead lives of of quiet desperation or noisy distraction. Man, I'll just, I'll go after that hobby or go after that job or I'll go after that money or whatever, but I just just can't stop and slow down and realize I don't have meaning. The third option, you know, uh, desperation or, or noisy distraction is joy. You find joy when you figure out why you're here. Because nothing will bring you more joy than living on purpose and for a purpose and knowing that you have designed by God to do something specific, which is invest your life in people. That's it. And you find that design, and, and it can be through golfing or cooking or whatever. It can be through those things that you enjoy. But the purpose is transcendent, and so the joy can't be taken away. 
You know, when I was a kid, uh, my dad, we did lots of projects together, right? We would work on cars, and we would uh, do home repair projects, and we would do woodworking and stuff. And one of the things my dad always emphasized was that um, tools had a purpose. He was very careful with his tools, and they had to be cleaned afterwards, and they had to be put away, and they had to be used for the right purpose. And so, you know, uh, if he walked in and he saw me taking a level and hammering nails with the level, he was not, he wasn't happy. And I, I will confess, moments like that did happen from time to time. When I didn't honor the purpose of the thing, boom, 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 and I'm hammering nails with the level. That's not what a level is for. It destroys the level, not what the level was made for. Now, for some of you, right, you've never seen this before. It's a level. (laughs) And it tells you if something is level, right. But it doesn't hammer nails, so I'll use another illustration. Don't hammer nails with this either, right? Or don't spread butter with it. Or I mean, that's not... It's not what it's for. What's going to happen? You'll destroy it. You'll destroy it. Because things are made for a purpose. And we are designed to run on joy. The human engine runs really well on joy. Because that's what we were made for. And we experience joy, paradoxically, when we give our lives to others. When our lives are fruitful. People find Jesus. People fall more deeply in love with Jesus. People begin to find their joy in Jesus, and we've invested in that. So Paul says rejoice because God will deliver you for a fruitful life. And then third, rejoice because God will deliver you into his presence. Verse 21, let's read it again. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to prefer. But I'm hard-pressed, I'm hemmed in from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, I, I want to show you the, the graphic, powerful nature of the words that Paul uses here. He says, uh, to die as gain is literally to die as profit. It's a financial word. He says, I'm going to make a profit when I die. <laughs> I'm better off when I die. Because I have a desire, literally, I have a lust to be with Christ. It's the Greek word epithumia. I have a lust to be with Christ. It's the strongest word for passion that he can express. I long to be with Christ. Why? Because he says literally, that is much more better. Which is terrible English grammar, but it's fine in Greek. He says it's so much more the better. It's, it's just, he just, he's piling one superlative on top of the other. So is Paul living in fear right now as he's about to be executed? No. Remember, we run on fear or joy. Is Paul in fear right now? No, he's not in fear right now. Are many of us living in fear right now? Yeah, that's why it leaks out in anxiety and anger and greed, because we're gripped by fear. I mean, for you who are parents, how many helmets does your kid have? <laughs> how many helmets does your kid need? You know, growing up, I had one helmet. I had a hockey helmet. It was probably a reasonable idea, but I didn't have any other helmets. just had that helmet. Or how many gallons of hand sanitizer parents do you buy? That's, well, man, you just... We wrap our kids in bubble wrap and send them into the world. We're fear. We're gripped by fear. Fear and anxiety, anger, greed, all these things are leaking out. Paul wasn't gripped by fear, even in the face of death. He, he, was, he was fine with it. He was welcoming. He wasn't eager. He didn't have a death wish. But instead, he had joy. Why? Because he knew that if he left the earth, he would be with Jesus. And in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. So either way, Paul knew he would win. As he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, We are of good courage 
And I say, actually, we prefer to be absent from the body because then we are at home with the Lord. Because if you're in the presence of the Lord, you have complete joy. You have some now because of all that you presently received, but you have more then. And either way, you win. Book of Revelation, John wrote, said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. How is it that all of these things can be gone? Because you're in the presence of the Lord. These things just can't exist there. Because what you really, really long for, the real source of joy, is not a place called heaven. It's the person of Jesus. And so all, all of the bad is removed. Tears and sorrow and mourning. And all of the good is present. And you were made for a purpose. You have a purpose now and you'll have a purpose then. There will be labor for you that is fruitful. Again, it's satisfying. It's fulfilling. It's not thorns and thistles. But it is complete joy. You understand why you're made. And you know that you will be in this place that you were made to be in with the person you were made to be with forever and ever and ever. So Paul can say, now, even in the face of death, I have joy. Because my life is really essentially, it's just win-win. My death is, it's win-win. Either way, I win. So Paul is not saying, God, I have joy because I'm going to get out of prison. Instead, I know that I'll be delivered through my circumstances for a fruitful life. And if not a fruitful life now, then I will be delivered into your presence for a fruitful life forever. Either way, I win. Church, we can begin to experience that joy even today, even in this moment. Remember, here's our definition. Joy is this. It's delight in what we now have. It's grace. Karis, kara. And we're grateful for it, and so we delight in it. All of the gifts that God has given us in Jesus Christ, our redemption and reconciliation, the removal of the dead of our sin forever, the fellowship of other believers, and the hope that we have in the future, the confident expectation that we will soon receive so much more from Jesus. And if that's the, the focus of our lives, we're looking at all of life and all of circumstances through that lens, then we experience joy. That's joy. Because you can't manage and you can't control all of the circumstances that are going to fly at you at life. But you can have something that's deep and abiding and transcends all of those circumstances. It's called joy. So as we close, I want to uh, give you just a moment to ask yourself, am I, am I living in joy or am I living in fear? You know, if not joy, where, where is the focus of your attention? What do you feel like, man, I must have this or this thing can't be taken away from me for life to be really rich and satisfying? What are those things right now that are getting wrapped around your heart? And how can you move toward joy? And ask God's Spirit to speak to you this morning. Hey, let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, and then I will close this in prayer. Father, we acknowledge that there's nothing of real significance that happens in these moments unless we're willing to listen to the voice of your Spirit. But when we listen and your Spirit just just breaks in and begins to break up that that fallow ground in our hearts where we've believed and trusted in things to bring us joy that simply cannot, then you begin that work of transformation And we experience genuine, abiding joy that lasts, that no one can take away from us. And I pray, Father, that that would be the fuel of our lives. And as a result, our life would just pour out and overflow into the lives of others. And we would experience 
uh, that one beautiful paradox that's more blessed to give than receive. And when we, when we die, we live. Father, I thank you that you've revealed that truth to us. I pray we'd live in it this week, following the example of Jesus himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Pray that you have a, a joyful week. We'll see you next week.